This is the Oil and Gas Startups Podcast, where we showcase emerging technology and the stories of industry founders, investors, and leaders with your hosts, Jake Corley and Colin McClelland. What's going on, guys? Welcome back to the Oil and Gas Startups Podcast. I think that's what it's called. We're just going to roll right into the show today. We don't have any notes, but actually, let's say... Let's give a quick shout out to everybody who came out to Energy Tech Night. I think it was a, a fantastic event. The feedback that we've gotten was absolutely phenomenal. You guys said you love the startups I've presented. You love the panel. So for all those who are wondering, when are we going to do this next? It's going to be probably a once a quarter type thing. April. Um, April's the next one. Yeah. yeah. Q2. Where's it going to be? We don't know. So we'll keep you guys posted on that. So thank you to everyone who came out and supported that. If you want to support the show, please uh, leave us a review. If you like this episode or any other episodes you listen to. It kind of helps us keep doing what we're doing. So without further ado, welcome to the show, Paul. Thanks for having me. We've got Paul from, how do you actually pronounce it? Is it Tachius? Or is Tachius, it? yep. Tachius, okay. Where'd you guys get the name? So Tachius is based on the word tachyon. Tachyon is a hypothetical physics particle that moves faster than the speed of light. Okay. So my co-founders and I were all physics people by background. And we sat down on the couch as we were starting the company and listed about 200 physics words and then changed them a little bit and then searched to see what dot coms were available. Mm. And Tachius was the first one that didn't make us cringe the head of the dot com. <laughs> so rolled with it and here we are five years later. That's too funny. Yep. That kind of reminds me how we got our name for River Oak Central Resources using a gen- <laughs> name generator. We're like, hey, nice. That's, a, yeah. that's the first decent one. So <laughs> <laughs> that's so funny. So it's so you're one of the founders and then how many other like co founders do you have? Two other co founders. Okay. Yep. Cool. So you guys were all in school together and that's how you met? Yeah. So I went to high school with our original CEO Okay. and he went to Stanford with our original chief scientist. Okay. Yep. So, so what does Techies, uh, what does Techies do? Can you just give yeah. us that high level overview? So yeah, it's uh, appropriate for your show. We're a startup in oil and gas and specifically we build software to optimize oil and gas assets. So particularly EOR projects like steam floods and water floods. We have a simulator that runs 10 or 100 or 1,000 times faster than a conventional simulator and can predict how production is going to fare for a given plan for a steam flood or water flood and then is able to run you know, 1,000 or 10,000 times in parallel to explore all the possible decisions that you can make as a field operator and then hopefully gives you back one that gives you much better production or much lower costs or overall greater net present value for your field. Mm. So how, so how did a whole bunch of guys at Stanford get looped into oil and gas? Yeah, so we started the company. I mean, So I was at Microsoft up in Washington before, yeah. and I got a call from my buddy from high school saying that he had just sold his previous company and was ready to start whatever was next and didn't know what was next yet, but he was interested in having me on board and you know having me as the software guy. So that was enough to get me to jump ship from Microsoft and move down to the Bay Area. And at that point, we spent you know, five or six months just in this house up in the, in the hills, kind of like the show Silicon Valley, if you've mm. ever seen it, <laughs> yeah. very much that vibe. And we, we basically broke down the top 10 or 20 biggest industries in the world by total annual value. So it's like oil and gas is, I think, number two after agriculture. Oil and gas, I think, is the biggest input to agriculture by dollar value as well. So it's a big one. And we went down the list to mining, manufacturing, government, healthcare. And, you know, like I said, we're all physics guys. So we wanted something that we could get into that was an industry that was 
ripe for disruption and underserved by its current software, but not just like throw you know a neural network at the problem or just do all the data science that a bunch of people are trying to do, but also kind of bring in the physics because that that's our area of expertise. So of all of those, you know, oil and gas is a great industry because it's it's all physics. It's, mm-hmm. it's all fluid moving underground, and then when it gets to the surface, there's there's more physical problems, fluid flowing through pipes or in tanks. So it was just a great it was a great great problem to throw our skills at. And we also discovered that in California, about 10% of U.S. oil production was right in our backyard in Bakersfield. Mm. And there was a whole world right next to us that we had never seen before. Did you know? Um, Yeah. So were you aware of the oil production in California before you guys started kind of? No, absolutely not. It's wild. So I worked on a well inside Los Angeles. Like this well was right in the middle of a golf course in L.A., and what's funny is my stepmother's family lives there. It was in a little suburb, Brea. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'm coming there to work on a well. And Brea, which means tar, I think. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And so it's funny. She's like, I had no idea that there was oil wells up here. We live two miles away from that golf course. I get up there, like at a major intersection, there's this pump jet just pumping in the parking lot. And nobody around there even has a clue, you know, that that's oil related. And then you go into the hotel and like there was some oil artwork in the hotel rooms. And so I started looking up Brea and it was just an old oil field town. But most of the people in California have no idea that that's right in their, their own backyard. I mean, huge fields too. Like you go out there and it looks like you're in eastern New Mexico. I mean, just shallow mm-hmm. wells with little pump jacks for as far as you can see. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of interesting that you guys, you know, like, oh, oh shit got oil wells right here that we can <laughs> start applying this to. Yeah. The first field we saw was the Kern River field, the Chevron work operates in Makersfield. And that's a pretty incredible first field to see because I think it's one of the tightest spaced fields mm-hmm. in the world. It's a steam flood and, you know, within an acre, there's probably two or three wells. So. Yeah. That's what's crazy. I mean, it's just pump jacks for yep. you know, as far as you can see. So do you guys... When you started kind of making this transition into oil and gas, you know, this is something that Jake and I are pretty familiar with because since we've established ourselves at the intersection of oil and gas and technology, we have a lot of, you know, Silicon type or Silicon Valley type startups reach out to us like, hey, you know, we think that we have this technology that could be applicable to oil and gas, but the problem is we don't know anything about oil and gas. Can you help us out? Did you guys go and seek anybody with oil and gas experience right off the bat or did you guys just kind of start you know, attacking the the problem. How how did that evolve? Yeah, so I would say the first oil and gas exposure came with our pilot customers. So we just reached out through our network. I mentioned the the process we went through to figure out what company we wanted to start. Mm-hmm. A lot of that was just going as deep as we could into our network and finding people that worked in the industry. One of those people ended up being our first pilot customer in Bakersfield. We just went down two or three times to hang out with this guy and see how his company worked. And just saw the problems that he had. And, you know, some of them were sophisticated oil and gas problems. And some of them were high level problems that anyone could understand because he had his pumpers driving around. And this is how a lot of people do it. They just write down their measurements on notepads every day and then phone them into the office. And then the person in the office types them in and puts them in their database or their spreadsheet or whatever. And then people don't realize that's standard. Yeah. Across the industry still today. So the first thing we did was we built an iPad app and all their pumpers were using iPads and, you know, 12 weeks after we came up with that idea instead of notepads. And then, you know, that, that got the data in our hands that we could start playing with and sort of went from there. So essentially you developed a field data capture 
application yep. from point of inception to having it out in the field in 12 weeks. Yep. Wow. That's pretty impressive. I mean, one, it's impressive that you guys are able to spin it up that fast and get it out there, but then it's also impressive that you can vent someone in oil and gas that quickly to adopt a new technology because you can find that it's very hard wow. to get someone sold on an idea. Yep. You know, even if you guys were doing it for free, it's a bit of a challenge. So that's really cool. We know firsthand the, yeah. the barriers that come I've, to that. Yeah, I've so. built a full data capture app with my last company, and there were so many. We went through like seven iterations. Obviously, that wasn't a means to an end. It was. I mean, we needed the, obviously to get the data in the system so that you know the customers could use it for for variety of purposes, and there's a ton of different information. But the the biggest barrier was the the cultural barrier of getting pumpers. And if you ever hang out with pumpers, I mean, it's like our pumpers eighty two, and the other one's like probably what late. 50s early yeah 50s? i mean this isn't a blanket statement for all pumpers there's there's, I mean, there's young, young pumpers young too. pumpers out there too but you know it depends on the size of the operator you, you damn hipster pumpers <laughs> 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 okay but what i'm trying to say is like it, most areas you know it's some older gentlemen and, and they're not like super technology savvy and you go out there and you hand them an ipad and it's just like well, what, what the hell am i supposed to do with this thing like I've been writing my gauges in here for 60 years. Why the hell am I going to change? And so yep. I remember we had to go through so many different iterations to essentially what it ended up looking like was at first the UI was always, it was beautiful. It was wonderful. And then it would just got progressively worse over time, but engagement <laughs> went up. It essentially looked like a, like a fancy spreadsheet for most of the stuff that we were capturing, but that's what the guys liked. And then eventually we got to the point where we brought it in and they were just like, okay, yeah, we can use this. We know how it works. You don't have to teach us anything. I was like, okay, so. So yeah. were you guys, when you were at this stage, was it your co-founder who had sold out of his company? Was he kind of funding the operation up to this point or as just bootstrapping? We had raised a small seed round. Okay. So I mean, we were paying ourselves subsistence and you know, yeah. just scraping by until we, until we found what we wanted to do and turned on the gas to grow. Okay. But that was, that was great that, you know, through his network from his previous company, we were, we were able to fund ourselves and. Uh, our first couple of employees off of just angel and seed funding. Yeah, yep. yeah, very good. Yeah, it helps having someone on the team too that's already you know had a successful exit and has a track record of yep. being a successful entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. Yeah, bring some validation to the project. So after you guys built a full data capture, now you have the now you have a whole bunch of data that you guys can play with. What was the next step yep. for you guys? Yeah, so the the first pilot customer we had, I think, ten wells or so on cyclic steam, huff and puff. Mm -hmm. We looked at that data. That was kind of the biggest operational cost, I think, that he had and where his focus was. So what we did was we built a physical model of what goes on during a cyclic steam job and used the heat equation, used Darcy's law, all the basically all the physics equations that govern how steam and oil and, and water are going to move around underground when you do a, a steam job and modeled then based on the past steam jobs how, you know, we built a model to understand how future jobs would go. And what we found just basi basically building this model over a weekend was that if he had done his last 10 jobs in a different order, he would have made a million extra bucks of incremental oil. So that was a pretty exciting result. And we took that to him and eventually got him to use our model to decide what jobs to do. And all of his uh, incremental oil from his jobs went up right away. So that was kind of like the big moment of transition for us when we went from being just kind of still in the exploratory phase, building the data integration app to being a real like modeling and optimization company. So you guys knocked it out of the park for him. So then we were like, okay, so this is what we're going to do. So now we're in the business of yep. doing physics stuff and oil and gas. Yep. What yeah. The, the idea is if you can, you know, you sell iPad app, that's 
to sell that, you have to say, I'm going to make you a little bit more efficient or I'm going to make yeah. your life better. What's that worth to you? Mm-hmm. And I mean, back then oil was one ten a barrel. So it's easy to convince people of things like that, but you know, <laughs> it's even, even easier to convince them. I'm going to sell you some software that makes you a million dollars and that's obviously worth something to you. Yeah, um, it's, a, it's turned out to be harder to sell than we thought, but we'll, we'll maybe get there in the story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a lot more clear of a value proposition, exactly, yeah. right? Plus, it's a lot higher. I mean, I know several field data capture applications within the space. So what you right. guys are building is a lot higher entry barrier for competition. Mm-hmm. I mean, you guys, you know, if anyone's listening that they were at our Energy Tech Night, you might remember seeing Tachius was up there. You know, it was a quick presentation 10 minutes which i don't think 10 minutes is enough to run through the entire software but you probably got an idea of what they're building and i mean it's very intricate software i mean it looks simple easy to use but what you've built on the back end looks i mean valuable Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so so then what was next (laughs) (laughs) so we i mean we took our results and we you know showed them off to the extent that our Mm -hmm. first customer permitted us to and Ended up closing a bunch more pilots in Bakersfield, mm-hmm. uh, but these were all geared around cyclic steam optimization. So we would come in and we would do what we call a back test where we look look back and, you know, train on all of their steam jobs up until, you know, a year before the date. And then we'd predict the jobs in the last year. And if we got a pretty good match, that means that our model is accurate and we trust it predicting forward. Then we predict forward and we'd look for how much opportunity is there for future jobs. So if our model is correct and you steam the jobs we say to steam versus the ones you were going to steam, how much more money could you make? And if that's a big number, then Tachyus can be very valuable for you. Did you guys have the same business model then as you do now, or were you still kind of just figuring it out? So the the product and the thesis and the, the sort of components that go into the product were all the same back then. Okay. We've iterated a lot on pricing strategy. We've, you know, we're now in operating on four different continents. So we've diversified a lot in terms of type of customer, size of customer, but the, the principle is still the same. You build a physical model, you validate that it's predictive through a back test, and then you, you do an optimization looking forward. You uh, then follow the results of that optimization to get more value. So when you started scaling up the operation in Bakersfield, what year was this time frame? That was right at the beginning of the downturn in 2015. Okay. That's a great time. Yep. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know if we asked this, but when did you guys kind of start this oh, operation? Yeah. So 2013 was kind of the research year. December 2013, we call the official founding date of the company. When our, the three of us officially got together, decided we're building oil and gas tech company. 2014, we built the iPad app and discovered this thermal model for cyclic steam. And then 2015, we were really sort of taking that to market and trying to get more customers in Bakersfield. Okay. And now you're on several continents, so I yep. feel like we got a gap to, That's to right. cover here. So, <laughs> but I like the strategy that you guys really focused on the Bakersfield market yep. instead of you know maybe rushing out to the the Permian or wherever and right. know, wherever the hot plate was yep. at the time, Bakken, Eagleford, et cetera. You really just kind of focused on that that market entry. So right. Well, like I said, we were interested in what was right there in our backyard, and Bakersfield's all about thermal. So. I think, yeah, it's, I think it's there. a good thing too, because I think a lot of people forget about that market in general, especially startups. And so that market is not oversaturated with a ton of startups hitting up those companies with new technologies. I've interfaced with a few of them and went to their office and did some demos and stuff. And they like, it's like they had never seen anything before, which is quite different than especially a lot of the companies in the Permian right now who've like looked at every single technology you could possibly imagine. 
So that's definitely a smart strategy. Yep. I mean, it even goes back to what I talk about sometimes with like oil-filled services. Like if I was going to start a service company or tech company, or anything, I'm not going to go focus on the Permian Basin. I'm going to go focus on some of those niche plays and work mm-hmm. in with some of those operators where it's easier to get a little bit of market share, build those relationships. So yeah. it's good to hear a, you know, a firsthand account of that working for you guys. Mm-hmm. So you're taking over Bakersfield. Yep. Everybody knows about you. Yep. What happened after that? What was the next step to jumping out of Bakersfield? So it's not a straight line up and to the right from there, obviously, because the downturn <laughs> happens. There's some. So let's, uh, let's dive into that because yep. I went. So we I started first company in oil and gas 2013, and then went through the downturn as well, mm-hmm. and then I did that through 2016. So let's talk about the challenges that you guys yep. experienced during the downturn because yep. I think a lot of people. It's very easy to forget, I think, and you know, now that things are looking a lot better than they were then, I mean, it's all contextual. I mean, $50 oil, and we're like, yeah, you know, it's, <laughs> yep. you know, so let's talk about those challenges. So I think the biggest challenge for us was that we were facing two things at once. One was the price environment, mm-hmm. and two was that we had, we knew we found something valuable, but we maybe had overestimated how much product market fit we had. So it's not just a, a matter of the dollars that come out of our model. It's a matter of what it's worth to the customer, how the customer understands it, how it works in with their workflow. And all of those things converge, you know, and then just like the general perception in the industry of working with service providers, what software is worth, so all of these ingredients sort of coming together. And that, that was something we really still had to figure out. So at the same time, getting hit by the downturn, yeah, I would say, it was hard. I don't know. It was a moment of reckoning for us. We had to figure out what the what the company was going to be. You guys already taken additional funding past the seed funding at this point. Yep. So we let's see, 2015. Yeah. So we raised we raised most of our capital to date by 2015. So okay. we were we were doing pretty well. Okay. So what was that like going through the downturn? You'd already taken capital, dealing yep. with you know all of your your investors at that point. Was it were they understanding? Obviously, you guys don't control oil prices or anything mm-hmm. like that. You can't control the market. Was yep. there a lot of pressure there? Well, we had runway. We weren't getting a lot of pressure from our investors. I mean, we, we've been fortunate to have fantastic investors that have let us kind of run with it and and do our thing. Yeah, I would say that the struggle there, there was some struggle retaining employees mm-hmm. when we didn't have really clear revenue growth during that period. Yeah, just I mean, struggled uh, getting people who wanted to pay attention to our technology, who wanted mm-hmm. to make budget for it. Mm-hmm. It, it was often like, do I pay for Tachyus or do I? You know, do I pay for Tachyus and lay off three extra engineers or do I keep the engineers and not pay for Tachyus? I, I don't know about mm-hmm. the numbers of, of engineers. I'm, I'm making something up, but yeah. you know, it's like, you know, that's that, the type of decisions that people are making in that price environment. So I yeah. remember 2015 being 2015 all the way until about summer 16. That's when, that's when things I, I started noticing that things were starting to shift yep. and people realized they needed to kind of like just, you know, kind of button down for, for the long haul. And that it was going to be a low price environment for much yep. longer than what they thought. And that's when, because on the whole way down, it was just like everybody that we were talking to, it was like every door shut. It was Mm -hmm. just like, I don't know if I'm going to have a job next week. So why am I talking to you about your technologies, right? And so obviously our whole pipeline just went down to pretty much nothing at that point. So we just focused on product development. We knew the market was going to come back eventually, right? Yep. And so, but things changed about mid-16, I think, once everybody kind of had that realization that, hey, we're kind of stuck in this. Yep. Was that kind of the the same thing for you guys? Yeah, mid I don't know. 2016 is kind of a blur. I remember uh, <laughs> beginning of 2016 feeling like rock bottom to me. By the end of 2016 or beginning of 2017, I forget when it was, we started talking about the phrase, the new, the new normal or the whatever yeah. that is. Like, the, you know, this is, 
this is where prices are going to be going forward. And we were in maybe the 40 to $50 range. So that, at that point, we kind of come to terms with it. We had a better sense of like the sustainable scale of our team and a business model that would, you know, take us through to where we needed to be and, you know, scaling out to more geographies beyond Bakersfield. So, but we had our, our head screwed back on at that point. So I think one thing that's interesting about you guys is if you, if you guys want to talk about this is who you're funded by, especially mm-hmm. founders fund. Yep. I think that's particularly interesting because to my knowledge, I think they've made three investments in the oil and gas space, which is kind of, they are very much outliers Yep. from most of the firms that I've talked to in Silicon Valley or New York or anywhere else. That's not really native to oil and gas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, they're headed by famous contrarian, Peter Thiel. Have you met Peter? That's what I was just about yeah. to say. I mean, I mean, that's when you're cool. led by, you know, one of the most famous contrarian, yeah, then right. it's not a surprise that they're an outlier. No. <laughs> yep. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Yeah. What's, so, Peter, what's Peter like? Very cerebral. Really? Yeah. Good yeah. to talk to you. We talked most of our meeting about the Bay Area versus Houston housing prices when we were negotiating our Series A. And then I think we spent five minutes at the end talking about, uh, you know, what the, what the terms would be for the Series A. Yeah. So. Awesome, man. <laughs> I mean, That's he it. he was right. So I I don't I you know he's he's a super sharp guy and a really interesting guy and has done some amazing stuff. He he correctly predicted at that point that we we're going to move to Houston. We were kind of like looking at each other, like you know, why is he talking about us moving to Houston, leaving San Francisco? <laughs> so I guess he, he was way ahead of the curve. Yeah. Of all, all the companies now that are talking about leaving San Francisco are like taking substantial parts of their team out. So, yep. That's awesome, man. Yep. I mean, it's you know. For you guys, it's got to be a big confidence boost when you get yep. someone on board like that. I yeah, mean, just a, a legend, you mm-hmm. know, and he has the confidence in you guys to go carry this out. Yep. And then another thing that I like is that you guys did move the team to Houston. Why Houston instead of Austin, where some of the, the other, you know, kind of you're having that mass exodus from, you know, Silicon Valley going to Austin. But then you also have these oil and gas startups that are starting to headquarter in Austin as well. Yep. Well, we actually had at the time, well... I don't know exactly when it happened. It, it was kind of gradual. We had at least one engineer since the beginning who was in Houston. And, you know, it always kind of made sense to have people around him. He was a really great engineer that is still at the company today. So kind of jumped at the opportunity to put some people around him. I don't know how it is in Austin, but at least in Houston, our experience has been that it's been much easier to find and retain people, software engineers in Houston. Silicon Valley, it's kind of like, you know, we're just you know, we're, we're a startup in X industry. And a lot of people say, okay, I'll come do the, I'll do this like for the tech. And just cause it's an interesting opportunity. seems like it, the company's growing. It's oil and gas. Okay. Whatever. And then we don't, you know, they don't stay for the long haul. Yeah. The more, more yeah. temporary guns for hire than anything. Right. So here it's like, you know, it's more aligned with the culture. Everybody, like everybody knows all their, you know, friends and family that are in oil and gas. It's like something that people are aware of and that people are already thinking about, and then when you're a software engineer in Houston, you can work at a startup, you can work at an oil and gas startup in particular. I think that's quite a bit more of a unique opportunity than just like working at a tech company in San Francisco. So Absolutely. Yeah. No, I like that you guys put your roots here. I, I mean, I'm known for being on the record for talking shit about the oil and gas startups that headquarter <laughs> in Austin, especially my founder friends that are, you know, they're making weekly trips to Houston for client meetings. I was like, oh yeah, well, you know, if you're headquartered in Houston, we're 
all the oil and gas activity is, you wouldn't have to. <laughs> it just makes too much sense. We have the highest concentration of all things oil and gas. Yep. Yeah. So if you want to, if you really want to do the most damage, yeah. you have to have at least a, have to so be here. Yeah. yeah. You have to have some kind of. Presence. So I mean, our headquarters is in San Francisco, mm-hmm. which is great, and we have the you know all of our investors are there. There's a lot of tech there. Our, our chief scientist is still there. Mm-hmm. Engineer is still there. And then big office in Houston, but I feel like Austin would be splitting the difference and we wouldn't have the great things about San Francisco or about Houston. So yep. who was it for Techius that we worked that was, was it, was her name Jerry? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah Jerry. we actually, we were just talking about her saying, oh, right. yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, she's great. I didn't know who she was. Yep. She came under one of our happy hours. I mean, she was just fucking grilling me mm-hmm. on some questions about <laughs> yep. our low wells. Jerry, like, Jerry's a heavy hitter. Yeah. She's smart. <laughs> Uh-huh. She's, yeah, she's smart. I liked her a lot. But I told Jake, I said, man, she's just grilling me about our assets. I was like, I don't even know who she was. <laughs> yep. So, you know, you guys, obviously, you made it through the downturn. Mm-hmm. You're able to weather the storm. Yep. Past, you know, one, two years, how have you guys been seeing adoption in the market? And how, I mean, you guys are obviously, you're not just focused on American plays anymore. Yep. Same, being on different continents. Right. So the the big evolution that we made since before the downturn was we expanded our models to field wide. So instead of just doing cyclic steam, we expanded steam flood and water flood. That's thanks to our, our chief scientist who we managed to poach out of Chevron. When we were, we were trying to find somebody with like a reservoir engineering simulation background who also knew a lot about machine learning and was kind of at the cutting edge of applying that to the, the, you know, the problem of reservoir optimization. And we talked to about 50 people and all of them said, go talk to Paul of Sarma. You'll never be able to hire him, but he's the guy you want to talk to. And then a, a couple of months later, my co-founder, who's very persuasive, managed to close him. And uh, he's been really valuable and, and built out most of our core modeling engine since then. That's awesome. Yeah. I, I find that's you know, one of the hardest things about oil and gas technology and the startup space is that you want to find those guys that are, you know, they've got this skill set, you know, in this case, reservoir engineering. Yep. But then they've also got expertise in machine learning and how it can be applied and you know there's only a handful of people that can check off those boxes and then it has to be a fit for the team right so that makes it hard right and then you have to poach them from chevron where i'm sure you know he had a, a nice compensation at at chevron yeah. so you have to be very <laughs> persuasive into getting those guys but you know when you have a cool technology like this that's changing the game it, it's cool to be a part of that yep be a part of the team so we talked about the struggles of obviously the downturn and as you guys evolved and stuff, have there been, I'm sure there's been a million challenges, but any, any that come to mind as you guys have evolved and as your, as your team has grown, as you've expanded to new continents? The challenges are? Yeah, just any kind of challenges that you, that kind of stick out in your mind as you're kind of moving. I mean, you're, I mean, you're still in startup phase, but it seems like you guys are doing well and it seems like you're kind of, you know, you're growing and you're expanding your presence and stuff. And yep. I think with that, in a new phase of the life of the company, I think there's, you know, new challenges that present itself. Yep. Yep, definitely. I think we're, for the last two to three years, we've been running pretty lean mm-hmm. and it, it feels even more lean because we're so spread out. Mm-hmm. Like Houston is our biggest office and there's typically four or five people in there. Mm-hmm. We're something like 20 people now. But, you know, every, we have a couple people in Latin America. We have two people in UK, Bay Area office. My home base is Seattle. So we're just, we're all over. And that kind of just makes it feel like you're even more thin than you are. Let's see. Another challenge we've kind of gone through is like the software R&D development process. Mm-hmm. And just given the speed that the industry moves and 
you know, people's availability, the feedback loop can only be so fast. So you have to figure out how to, you know, you want to be agile and you want to do all the, the right uh, software things to make sure you're building the right thing and building it efficiently. But there, there's only so much product feedback you can get. So you have to kind of uh, make some guesses and you have to build out for a couple of weeks something that you don't know if it's going to work or not. So that's been another big challenge. I think with running such a lean team, I think you you really can't afford to have any bad hires. And it seems like with yep. with what you guys do, it's a lot of just really, really brilliant people in a room, right? Mm-hmm. What tips do you have for other entrepreneurs who are kind of going through the process, scaling up the company when it comes to hiring? I don't even know if you yep. handle any of the hiring or if, if somebody else handles it or not, but yep. Yep. is there any like rules of thumb that you kind of go by? Or Yeah, I don't know. I would say the best advice I could give today is hire people that are good at building finished products. You know, the kind of people that win hackathons yeah. where they show up in a room and build something cool in eight hours that they can actually demo and use. You know, there's a lot of lot of value in the software engineer that can go really deep on a technical problem and you need them too. But sort of the the huge step function developments to the product are are made by people that have an idea and go kind of get it done and, and figure out how to get it done and like see the value that they're bringing to the customer as a result. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I agree with that 100%. And they they may not have like 10 years of experience. They may not have the degree, but you know, some of our best people that we've hired on the software team didn't even have a bachelor's degree. Yeah. Uh, And, but you know, they are self-taught and found things they wanted to build and want to build them. They're just doers, right? Exactly. Awesome. We've got a guy coming by here today that was highly recommended to me from another company. And he was the only person to ever beat both of their coding challenges. And apparently like he's, like on paper, it doesn't look like anything, but he's just a kid who's been writing code since he was like in his in his teens, and apparently the kid's like brilliant. So just I'm smart. Kind of, I'm, <laughs> I'm excited to meet him. So, I'm so, nice. what are what are some things you know? 2019, we're in Q1. What are you guys planning on doing throughout the rest of the year? You got any goals that stick out that you're looking to hit? Yeah. So I guess 2018 was a big year change for us. I was in charge of software up until about mid year last year. Okay. And then my co-founder kind of step back a little bit. He's our chairman now. And also he's running a venture fund himself. So he's he's like someone involved and I'm the CEO now. So that's, and we, we also hired Jerry, who you met. So Jerry's our, our president and handles a lot of executive relationships with investors or, and not, sorry, not investors, customers. She also does the investor stuff. And then we have COO now. So we've sort of split the, the CEO job a couple different ways. And that's been a big change in the the structure of the company. We've also tripled our revenue and just like drastically scaled up how many customers we're supporting. That's awesome. And the last year was sort of about growing pains of figuring out how we take what was, you know, a good demo or a good pilot and then scaling it up to something that the user is actually going to have working as software as a service. So with those lessons, we realized we're going to go out and raise some more money. That's a number one agenda item. And we're going to continue pushing in Latin America. We've had a, a tremendous amount of success. Europe, Middle East, Asia, also going to try and keep growing there. And then as a kind of bigger stretch goal, we're going to try and break into unconventional. So I say stretch not because we think it's going to be technically that difficult, but as you guys mentioned, penetrating the market's going to be harder and just finding the R&D resources to, to work on it and build out that product, given all of our competing priorities will be tough. Yeah. So for sure. Yep. Well, if you're an investor listening, reach out to Tachius. That's I'd, right. I'd bet on these guys. Or just send send <laughs> checks directly to uh, <laughs> 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 So you guys, you know, before we wrap this up, 
I want to get to this point. You guys tripled revenue. Do you have any use cases that stick out on your mind? You know, you guys had obviously that use case in the early days of Bakersfield where, you know, you saved a customer, you know, a million dollars. Do you have any use cases that really kind of stick out to you? I don't know the numbers customer by customer, but one that sticks out in my mind is a steam flood where we found $100 million of optimization opportunities, net present value. Wow. So if basically by just by changing injection rates, getting $100 million more million over 15 years. Jeez. So, yeah. I mean, that's, um, that's insane. It's a good one. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. And again, that's, you know, that's the number on paper, and there's all sorts of realities of how you have to implement that and operational constraints. Oh, sorry, so that actually does a pretty good job of taking into account operational constraints, but the field changes over time. You know, the way that you measure, the way that you measure production may vary or different engineers have different opinions about that. But I mean, even if you capture 10% of that potential value, that's $10 million in savings. So it's pretty good. Yeah, it's a a big number. It's a big enough number that you can miss it slightly. And you touched base a little bit ago on your, on your pricing model. How are you guys structuring that now? Is it just on a case by case basis? Are you trying to, you know, capture percentage of the value that you're creating customers or? Sure. Yeah. I I can't say too much about the specifics, but what we... What we always try and guarantee is that our customers are going to get great ROI from using our product. Mm-hmm. Often our customers get well in excess of 10x the total cost that they invest in the product in terms okay. of money that's coming into the bank mm-hmm. from implementing the optimizations. Yeah. So, you know, we just, we try and make it a no-brainer. Awesome. And that's fair. It should be, yeah. 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 That way it's a, it's a win-win for everybody. So before we wrap up, man, where can people find you? Are you on LinkedIn? Yep. Yeah. Okay. It's best best place to find me. All right. So they find you on LinkedIn. Your website is tackiest. Tackiest.com. Dot com. I mentioned that dot com. We got that dot com. We got the dot com, <laughs> man. <laughs> it's important, man. So yep. all right. So if you guys need to reach out to Tackiest, like I said, if you're an investor, they're gonna be doing a capital raise. So reach out to them to get more information about that. If you're an engineer that's looking to optimize your water flood projects, take a look at it, man. Sounds like they can save you a lot of money. Jake, got anything to add before we close it out? Hey, I just I appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, thanks yeah. for having me. Thanks, yeah, man. Appreciate it. All right, guys, if you enjoyed this episode, please take two seconds, leave us a review or a rating. Help us continue doing what we're doing and please know the algorithm for iTunes and Google Play and Stitcher and all those kind of things. And just makes the podcast get out there to a larger audience. So thanks again for listening. We'll catch you on the next episode. Cool.